we have the capacity to just do new things, try new things, and we're not steeped in a tradition of this is how it's done. And so I think that's a wonderful thing to have in being out of a city where you can actually broaden the expectations and and to somehow, you know, audiences can sometimes be maybe a little bit more forgiving of, uh, of taking risk. Could you take us on the journey of how you got thing that I learned about being a producer. Whatever it's taken to get to this point. A completely different perspective. That's my job. Using Heroes, a Circa podcast. Hi, it's Yaron. Thanks for joining us to meet today's Producing Heroes, Virginia Hyam from Hotter Gold Coast and Simon Hinton from Merigong Theatre Company. They are two extraordinary producers who share a particular superpower that is also a challenge. They work in venues located one hour from a major cultural capital, in Simon's case, Sydney, and in Virginia's Brisbane. So welcome, Simon, in Virginia. And I'm really interested to know what brought you about an hour away from where culture is generally seen to happen. Well, I'd um, been at the Opera House for many years and then I uh, went freelance for a while and I was um, um, looking for a good freelance job and these Commonwealth Games had come up in the Gold Coast and, uh, and so I thought that'd be a pretty good job, be a producer. And so that's when I got to work so closely with you, Yaron, and, uh, and worked on the Com Games. And, uh, and then as the rest is history, as we, uh, through Circa, took on programming at the opening of the uh, new hotter outdoor venue. So, um, so uh, I always say that basically I was, um, I was adopted into, into the Gold Coast via you. <laughs> I'm very happy to have been the adoption agency that brought you from <laughs> the big smoke to the Gold Coast. And Simon, what about you? Because you have a Brisbane connection too. Yeah, I do. I mean, in my case, this is all ancient history because I've been in Wollongong, which is about an hour's drive south of Sydney for 15 years now, more than 15 years. Um, and, and I, yeah, I moved from Brisbane where I was with Queensland Theatre Company. And I guess, I guess the impulse was really one about, you know, State Theatre Company, amazing place to learn, but bit of a treadmill factory churn out the shows all of that and I think I I really wanted to connect sort of in a deeper way with audiences and find a way to kind of make something happen within a community which I felt was sort of harder in a big city and the wonderful Sue Hunt who was very much a has been a mentor of mine over the years who had been general manager at Queensland Theatre Company she had years ago run Geelong Performing Arts Centre about an hour away from a big city. And she said to me, you know, the thing you should do is go and run a venue because you'll learn about every aspect of the industry. Um, And she really encouraged me to go to Wollongong and run Illawarra Performing Arts Centre, which is is sort of a a focus of of Maringong Theatre Company's, the, the venue management side of it. And so here I am 15 years later. I'd love to hear about something you produced that did exactly what you wanted it to do. Tell me about something you're proud of. In a career that um, I worked at the other day that's been going for 30 years now, um, I've, had, <laughs> I've had quite a few of those moments and it feels like there's been one in every kind of this, I feel like my career has been like four different segments. But the very first one that absolutely got me into it was when um, in the early 90s when I walked into the Adelaide Fringe office out of being in the education department for a few years before that and finding myself running a street party and then being in the middle of the street party and the middle of absolute madness and going, 
I have found my tribe and I never looked back and outside of the madness from that point. And it also just made me realize that you can, you can do anything if you just really have naive enthusiasm, really. <laughs> and so that's kind of what, so that's my first memory and there's many, many following, but uh, that was a long time ago too. But it stayed very strongly. Yeah, look, there's several things that I look back and sort of think, oh, that's the thing we're trying to capture again, you know, lightning strikes. I, I guess the, the one that really stands out for me as something where I felt that sort of community and art and audience and business sort of all came together sort of in, in the way we really wanted to was um, about 10 years ago, we actually, local city council, along. City Council was sacked by the state government for corruption. Um, and uh, we, uh, they obviously own our venues and are our major funder. Uh, you know, so there's a period of great sort of uncertainty, but we knew immediately that there was an amazing story to be told about this because it was, without going into the details, it was salacious and political and, you know, it had every sort of brilliant element, a sex scandal, you know, developers, corruption, you know, politics. It was, it was brilliant. So we really quickly worked out, look, we want to make a show about this. We want to make it close enough to the actual uh, situation to, to be part of the community's discussion about how we move forward. And so we basically decided that we wanted to commission um, work with Sydney company version 1.0, who at the time were really at the kind of height of their rise as sort of documentary theatre makers. And so we, we, you know, we funded a development, commissioned them and worked with them over time. But it was incredible because over that time, you know, we had to obviously go to our main funder and say, we're going to make a work about corruption at Wollongong City Council and, you know, work through, work through the sort of ins and outs of that, which was, was interesting. And then by the time the work was made, the council was having its first election and brilliant scheduling, brilliant programming. We actually managed to program it within, I think it was sort of a week before the election uh, of the new council. And running for mayor was... <laughs> was the former general manager of council who had been sacked as part of the, the corruptions kind of scandal. And he accepted our invitation to opening night and turned up to see this play which, in which he was featured. It's a major feature. But it was, it was an incredible time because the community who had been very kind of doubtful about the work, the word just went out that the work was funny and relevant. And it was like holding the most sort of creative, fun kind of town hall meeting with your town every night. Did he stay till the end? He did stay till the end. Um, it actually, did, in true politician style, he walked into the venue and we had, I think it was, we had the 7.30 report, or we, I think it was the 7.30 report. TV cameras were there on the night and they sort of caught him come in. And in true politician style, he turned around and said, was that okay? Did you want me to walk in again so you could get that <laughs> a good angle of me and you know, all of that? Um, he 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 left very quickly at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, as 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 Namjoon Pike said, the artist should bite the hand that feeds him, but not too hard. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting experience in doing that. But I think also, you know, one of those great examples where you feel like art connects people 
to important things in the community and feels really vital. And that's it felt like that every night. One of my uh, presentation points with with politicians and having that that same sort of feel was I remember uh, presenting Keating the musical before it became this massive thing, and we had it in the studio with Paul Keating trying to he was he was there sitting in the audience. He says, "I'm just going to sit at the top so no one can notice me," and and uh, and having his uh, accolades for the performance, and then just finally standing up and this whole place exploding, you know, and how, and yeah, and uh, and remember Mick on stage. It was it was that it was that sense of when yeah, absolutely politics and the community and everyone just feel together on the on the same page there in a theatrical in a theatrical moment. And my memory of that, Virginia, is I came the night that Anita Keating was there. And Anita in the was audience. there, very first. And night. I was seated, you know, because you had those tables at the front of the studio, and I was seated in such a way that she was in my sort of line of sight. And so hard to watch the show without just watching her face the whole time. I remember everyone just sort of didn't know whether to clap or what to do. And then she just stood up very gently. And yeah. then everyone, it was just really gentle. It was, yeah, that was, and then Paul came the next night. Yeah, so it was. <laughs> she, she, she was being the sort of the bodyguard for him. Is it all right if he comes? Yeah, it was. I think a few of the kids, his kids were there as well too, weren't they? It was yeah, yeah, I think a couple of the kids were with her, yeah. So one of, one of the things that, points to me is that when you're in a, a community, it's much harder to be anonymous. You are significantly, you're not, you are a much bigger fish in the pond that you are than you would be in a similar size art centre in Sydney or New York. And so you know more people, you have a greater cultural role and presumably you get hammered more. You certainly can't walk through the foyer without somebody stopping and telling you what they thought, good, bad, or, <laughs> or otherwise. Um, that's, that's certainly true. I, I, look, the way I always sort of say to people, and kind of slightly what I insist of my team too, is we're not separate to the community, we're part of the community. And that's mm. a different mindset, I think, programming and thinking that, you know, we we're part of our audience as well. We're not a separate thing. They're not a different type of people. We're not sort of speaking down to them or, you know, kind of, they're not separate. We're, we're part of our community. So that informs everything for me. It's quite, it feels quite different for me being here at Hotter because I've only been here a few years. I actually still, to be honest, still feel quite new to that community. So even though I feel like I've got a sense of it and now really understand it and, and we're able to be a part of building the personality around the arts we present, which connect with that community. I actually feel still a little bit anonymous and quite like that. I, I'm interested in your relationship then to the artists because I, Virginia and I have spent many much time meeting with local artists and you definitely are not anonymous there and I imagine neither are you, Simon. And full disclosure, we've worked quite a lot with Marigong Theatre Company and have had worked in connection with some of the companies that Marigong is associated with. And one of the things that I think happens is that you have, there's a elemental conversation between the artists that you need to invest in because they are the artists who are there and the program that you would like to be able to deliver. And they may be the same thing, but they may not. The artists may not be ready. The program, your concerns in the program may head off in a different direction or orientation to the artists. How do you navigate that space between the artist who is important to your venue because they're in the community and the artist whose vision and work you want to have in a program that you feel 
is the program you want to deliver? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess the first thing is from our point of view is that programming is multi-layered anyway, you know. Yeah. So programming is for different audiences and for different, you know, it's not one thing anyway. And that's probably what I love actually about where we're doing it is that actually there are much narrower focuses of programming in some instances. You know, if you're working for a state theatre company and you're producing nine shows a year and that's who you're talking to. And whereas I think that one of the things I, I talk a lot about is a sort of coalition of audiences, which is that we, we don't have one audience. We can't afford to have one audience. <laughs> there aren't enough people to fill the theatre if we only appeal to one audience. And the same is really true then with artists too, I think is like there's all of these different levels and layers but it's also taken us a long time I think to get to a coherent space of being able to sort of program Bangara Dance Theatre and a local circus piece you know in, in a coherent way within a program with different streams and stuff obviously and to be honest when I started here, we said all our work with, with local artists was only development, no presentation. Uh, and that's really, you know, probably only changed significantly in the last seven or eight years. We just like we, we needed a really strong development program before there was work to actually be shared with an audience. So that's a great success story. Would you like to tell our far-flung listeners what your program opened with this year? Yes, well, like most of us here, very short program before <laughs> before we shut the venue. But um, and opened and closed with it. Well, year. almost. It didn't quite close with it, but yeah. So we opened our season with a show called Trash Talk, which is the third work that we've made with an ensemble of actors who are perceived to have intellectual disability. And it's a, we now have an ensemble of seven actors who are paid one day a week normally. And then uh, when they go into rehearsal or creative development or whatever more um, uh, permanently with us. So they're the Strange Ways Ensemble. Uh, it's been about 12 years. We've been working in partnership with the Disability Trust, who's a local kind of service provider to the disability sector long a lot of work gone into sort of you know artist development skills development and yeah this is the third work they've made and the works are funny and clever and you know and, and very much their voice but it's taken a long time to get to that point of working out how uh to bring in different artists to work with them and to actually get a kind of um and again that show then you know, what we've been really determined with that is that those shows are not presented separately to our main stage program. They're part of our main stage program. So getting to the stage where we're confident to present that show and then a show from Belvoir the next week or whatever has really taken a lot. But the last couple of shows that they've done have just been so wonderful and joyous and well-designed and beautiful, you know, all of the production values as well, um, which has been really important. Do you think because you're located out of a main centre that the pace could be slower and you have more development and producing time than you might in a capital? Maybe maybe that's true. I don't know. I mean, I think most people involved in the development of work sort of feel like most work gets developed over about two or three years. I think that it's possibly different if you're a circa and you've got an ensemble of acrobats and there's sort of work constantly being made anyway. But 
certainly for us, the sort of deep community linked work is about three as a three year cycle for each work, really. And then as a company, it feels like <laughs> sort of talk about it decade by decade. You know, it, it really feels like the changes in gear are not about a year or two. They're about seven or eight. And therefore, yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of the things I sort of say to my team is what we're doing isn't measured in months or years. It's measured in, you know, that hopefully people don't even notice the change in your community because it, it happens. And people think it's the forest that sprung up miraculously in the desert yeah. or whatever. Virginia, what about you? What about the way you negotiate the, the company versus program conversation? I'm a bit like Simon in the fact that, you know, I see I, I see the, the local product sits right next to the national and the international product and and hopefully within the same week and sometimes within the same program, you know. So so there is that sense of the breadth of work that you have to offer. So I kind of really agree we do the same thing as that. And I have to say, you know, like I've found my trajectory of programming a, a very interesting one, having been in the studio and being focused on a on a 350 seat room where it's just current contemporary work that's what you can do multi-arts and now I just go oh now it's multi-venues from like and all ages and from three and a half thousand to a hundred and so it's a it's a multi-faceted picture of framework of of actually um of fitting all those bits in so naturally all those parts fit in there and then of course side by side with that is the actual local community work that goes on and they come in and they do their musicals and you'd have you'd have the same thing that goes on and that's the thing sometimes I just find the hardest where I'll have a beautiful say an international artist like Nitin Sawney coming in and and it's just like the quintessential best music that you can listen to and it's quite difficult to sell a lot of tickets to and then the local dance school you can't get a ticket to it because it's completely sold out so that's the thing that you really struggle with that I struggle with in community the community don't struggle with it and but it's that thing of how do you then get those those people into coming in to see other other shows. I don't know if you have that difficulty. But we're a long way, I think, behind where, where Wollongong is too in respect to that development because we've only just really started the whole Hotter, Hotter Creates program, which is that's where we're really talking to the local artists and getting them here on site, making work, developing work, playing. It doesn't have to have an outcome. But what we've actually seen is there's one thing that's come through from last year that now has joined our main program. So gradually, I think it's a very gradual thing. And that's really just been happening for one year. So I'd love to see what that's going to look like, you know, like with your story in seven, in seven years. And, and can you just give us a quick pricey of what that program is? Hot It Creates is, uh, is essentially a um, development program that is uh, put out to the community, which is like smaller bites of short developments and larger bites where you can apply for a little bit more money. It could be up to about, you know, $30,000 of development time where you actually spend time at Hotter developing at work at whatever stage it might be. And it might set you on the cards to do um, everybody now. I think did they did a really small one at the end of last year, which then set them on the path to be able to go to next steps of finding other forms of funding. And then you've got other ones that will come in the development for a week that a show 
grows out of it after another few weeks. And it's multi-arts, you know, so it's varying in practice completely. Thomas E. Kelly has had a had a few developments with us and that will then turn into a show, you know. So they're all at various stages and are looked at for their own, own right with that. So but looking at but really encouraging artists to have bold ideas, but also to encouraging them to collaborate with outside partners as well and artists from interstate and and so trying to build the build the the school levels and 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 the breadth of, of work that they can develop so it's really early early stages so and you know it's been halted a bit at the moment with the current state of where things are going but it'll you know it, that that's something that hot is completely committed to that can then gradually then start to morph in some of the main program both of you are doing beautiful work on the supply side but i'm interested in the demand side one of the one of the key challenges that i found working at the gold coast was there often wasn't a cultural frame of reference for the sophisticated conversation that i felt was should needed to be had to deal with the world around us because some of those intermediate steps artistic steps hadn't happened. So, for instance, I couldn't present radical contemporary art music because there was no audience for it or could only do so very haltingly. But I felt like that audience, that music was making sounds that responded to the world and were important. So I'm interested in what you do, first of all, to you agree, um, and what do you do to try and grow the richness and sophistication of the demand side of the, the equation? Well, for me, it's you include it in the program and uh, and recognise that you're going to have a small audience base. For me here at Hodder, one of the things I'm most proud of is to, you know, spend a week with Laurie Anderson here at Hodder and recognise that most of the people on the Gold Coast had no idea who she was. And I told her that it was fine. <laughs> it was all very clear. Um, but then, you know, like the 400 people that came to her in theatre performance walked away with the most sublime experience that could only then grow. So, so that investment was absolutely valuable for every artist that did know who she was to connect here to us here at the Gold Coast. And I have to say that one of the best moments of my kind of very limited exposure to famous people was saying to Virginia, no, I'm, I'm not available to come and have dinner with Laurie on Friday, on Monday night. That, that, that really sort of tickled some kind of contrarian side of my personality. But do you want to just walk us through what a week with Laurie at the Gold Coast looks like? It was, it was absolutely incredible because it was about her actually making a new work, which was Stories in the Dark. And I will never forget that. We were inside the black box, inside the outside stage in complete darkness and hearing storytelling from her sitting back on black velour lounges and the front of house people having to have night vision glasses to help people in case they got dizzy or whatever. But I always remember talking to Laurie just before it. She said, oh, Virginia, I hope it's going to be all right. Like, I've never done this before. What if it's no good? And I'm just going... I can't believe Laurie Anderson is saying that to me, which also was just beautiful to show that we're all so vulnerable and, you know. And then she worked with a group called Coda and created a musical theatre experience. She did her performance in the main theatre. And then, of course, the the community event that, you know, her concert for dogs, which brought about 1,500 people and all of their dogs for her to play music to. And that was that was just one of the most extraordinary days on the outdoor stage that I've ever seen because it is actually wonderful to see what sort of dogs everyone has to start with but the dogs were kind of also responding to it and then wandering around with her afterwards as she's chatting to people and people have no idea who she 
years until sometimes someone just look up and go, oh, my God, I'm actually talking to Laurie who's patting my dog. <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, uh, yeah, so she was here for a whole week. She was in, She was one of the most generous artists that you know, I've ever worked with. And I always say this, that in that week she changed the way I breathed. That was the way she made me feel because it was so contemplative. And, yeah, so, you know, they're your highlights. And I think it's, I think it's been a highlight here and really raised raise the bar of what is possible here on the Gold Coast and how wonderfully people responded to it. Even though there was niche but the big community thing, there was lots of people came along who most didn't know who Laurie was but thought it was a pretty quirky idea. Uh, so, Simon, uh, what about you? What do you do for the demand side? It's interesting having a long time in one place and really seeing that change over time. That perspective is really fascinating. There's no question there's things we present now that we couldn't have dreamt of presenting 10 years ago. There just wouldn't have been any audience for it and people would have been looking at at us like we're mad. It's a marathon, not a sprint, no question. I do always like to make the point that it's not that audiences in a place like Wollongong are less sophisticated than in Sydney. There's just less of them. Probably about the same percentage of the population of Wollongong is into contemporary dance as the population of Sydney. It's just that that number's a bigger number and it makes things possible. As a result, I actually think that in a lot of regional places, audiences have become actually exposed to really quite amazing things in a way that might not happen to as big a portion of the population as in a city. You know, and I think that that's one of the things I always look at is, you know, we we sometimes have things come and you'll realise that, okay, maybe only a thousand people in Wollongong saw that, but a thousand people in Wollongong as a proportion of the population, you know, is 10,000 people in Sydney or whatever, you know, and that very often means that actually a higher proportion of our population is being exposed to very diverse, sometimes challenging work over many, many years. And that's really shifted. You know, you can demonstrate that. You can look at the statistics and go, wow, that's fascinating. We can now sell a 1,000 tickets for that 10 years ago, 100 tickets. You know, we would have been lucky. So that is quite interesting. I, I mostly spend time saying to the team, oh, yeah, we didn't sell many tickets to that thing. It's difficult, isn't it? That means we're going to do it again next year. Uh not we didn't sell any tickets that means we can't do it because I think that that's actually the the main mindset of audience development is if you're going to take very small samples and say success is based on the one time we did something that's totally not understanding how audience development works you know it's a long-term thing we've got to have a very different perspective on it so I think if I do something sort of three years in a row and I see no kind of development, I start to think, okay, that's maybe not for now, in another 10 years. I totally agree with you there, Simon. I, yeah, in that in that slow build and just not and and just not giving up on it when you can see that gradual build because it's just it adds to the absolute richness and diversity of an audience. That is our role, I think, to just be offering the absolutely best art that we possibly can and, and a diverse mix of it. I also just wanted to add with the other way that here at Hotter that I feel like we're able to offer work that may be a little bit more challenging is through 
our outdoor venue that we've got here. So the experience I had with the Glow Festival last year was, it's like wrapping things up in candy a bit really, but in the Glow Festival last year, which is a, a big outdoor night light festival, huge general public, 17,000 people attended over three nights. We actually, when I reflected upon that program, about 50% of that program was contemporary dance. It was just great. Lots of people engaged with and really enjoyed, but it was just wrapped in a different package. And and I think that that actually brings up a really important part of what we do, which is building context for things. It's amazing how that context changes the audience relationship and what they're prepared to do. I remember seeing Gary Stewart's work, The Beginning of Nature, in its first kind of incarnation was at Wom Adelaide with sort of 3,000 people sitting on the grass watching it and responding like it was a rock concert, you know, at the end, you know, getting up and cheering and and you just thought, wow, it's amazing how exactly the same work placed in a theatre does a different thing for an audience and has a different relationship with audience. And so building context in lots of different ways is a huge part of that development of that demand side, you know, is, you know, everything from artist talks and different things that help contextualize an understanding of the work, but also just those things, you know, you put a Spiegel tent out the front, you put something in there, totally different audience comes than in your theater. So those different contexts are so important. What is the magic of the Spiegel tent? The way people just want to go inside them. And I don't get it because I'd very happily never see another show in a tent in my life, but you know, (laughs) One, one, one thing it raises for me is a relationship that seems quite complex, which is the relationship between the producer and the marketing team or department. It strikes me that the producer's job is to make something happen that probably couldn't quite be imagined. And the marketer's job is to very often comes, comes with what has happened before. And so a lot of those conversations, I mean, I, I know my f- own frustration with marketing is to go, but you can't see what I'm seeing. And they're like, well, we haven't seen it. You haven't made it yet. It doesn't exist and there is no audience for it. Isn't, there's no reason we should be able to see it. I couched this by saying I was a marketing manager. <laughs> <laughs> and my longest stint as a marketing manager was Queensland Theatre Company for four years. But I feel actually that, and I've said this to our marketing team, that in an ideal world, we would not have a marketing team. And that I actually don't believe in, for art, (laughs) marketing in quite the way that it's posited as an activity, which is the development of a market for a product or the development of a product for a market and kind of bringing those two things together. I think that actually what I would love to see us move towards is the distinction of people that make art and people that curate art and people that sell art blurring to the point where actually we, and I think in in good organisations it happens naturally, that actually people who may be close to the making or the curating find voice to talk about the art to an audience and hopefully the actual people who make the art, you know, we facilitate that because there's nothing worse than that, this incredible piece of work and then having translating it into sort of marketing speak and it's kind of gone suddenly it's like any other product that's amazing and you know acclaimed and all of those unique the number of unique things in the world yeah you know so so that's really 
it's really difficult. It's also sort of in the inherent difficulty, I think, of our job is, you know, the number of times when when people come and say to you, gosh, I just really didn't think I was going to enjoy that as much or I didn't think that was going to be as great as it was. And the frustration of going, there is no way to actually explain to somebody who hasn't seen a work mm. why it's special and mm. every attempt falls short you know and that and that's that's just a frustration of the of the job especially in a place where you don't have long seasons of things so Wollongong the Gold Coast it's not like we have a six-week season and in the first couple of weeks people discover the work and then they talk to their neighbors so actually what we tell people about the work is kind of probably the only way they're going to hear yeah, about yeah. it. I yeah I have to agree with all you're saying um except I have had a period of my life which was the absolute amazing synergy of marketing and producing when I was at the Opera House working with Craig Donarski and I've never, ever experienced that before and I think that I can actually put it down as to a really big part of the success of the studio where literally we're a team of a production person, marketing, associate producer and myself, but literally the marketing, we were involved in it right from the start of the discussion of every single show that went on and the and the shape of it and how it shaped into something. And it really was, it really was a shared storytelling. And uh, and so, you know, it shows that it doesn't surprise me now that Craig's running Kasula. You know, he actually got the picture of what a producer was actually doing. So, And that was super um, influential on a lot of us in the was- industry, Virginia, what you did at the studio. Because I think actually for a lot of people outside a sort of producing companies program, it was the first time seeing a sort of venue create a coherent programming message and stream and, you know, where you could actually see who this work is for and what it is and it makes sense. And and I, I say that really because there aren't many examples of that. And what I often think of is most programs are just one bloody thing after another in a schedule of things that don't actually appear to have any kind of meaning connected to each other. So it was really influential. And I think that when you are in sync, I mean, I guess that just like we want artists to be empowered to speak and communicate about their work, actually we want people in marketing to be empowered to yeah. understand the work and yeah. and feel the work and not feel that their job is the selling of the work. They're a part of the team of the whole making of the whole picture and that's what I meant about when a, when a team is in synergy, I mean, that's to me, that's the bottom line of success of any program that I've ever worked on. If you, you know, it's about that, that synergy and that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I've become very influenced by Seth Godin's idea that, um, Marketing is the sum of what people say about you. And so the job of a marketing team is to move that conversation, sometimes to refocus it, sometimes to add people to it, but it's not what you put out. It is what people are, it is actually what people are saying about you that is your marketing. I like that idea because it puts you in this dynamic kind of jujitsu kind of wrestling engagement with incomprehension and opportunity rather than we do brochures and we, we put out socials, we actually have to change a conversation. I, I also think actually one of the things that I, you know, occasionally hear from audience members, which I love, because I think it speaks to having got that right, is when people will come and say, 
I really didn't like that show, but I totally understand why you programmed it. And, and that, that it feels to me like the conversation that we've had with the audience has reached a point where they can distinguish between the value of, the, of you know, why we would bring that and that it has value, but it just isn't for them, you know, and, and that that's actually okay because then I feel like, okay, so you understood the why and so we obviously we communicated that in some way to you and the actual experience hasn't been for you, but you understood the conversation that we're trying to have with the audience. Most of us don't enjoy going to the gym, um, but the effect of working those muscles, uh, you know, has a benefit. And I think the same is probably true of experiences that are sort of aesthetic and artistic. And that's hard to explain to people that if you do it, enough <laughs> you'll start to enjoy it <laughs> exactly. exactly and and look no almost nobody likes contemporary dance or, or aleatory music the first time they experience it but after if you can get them to come back five yeah. or ten times uh it's, it becomes a powerful can become a powerful thing let's follow this idea of marketing as a conversation i've always thought of a producer as a storyteller in chief in order to make work happen, they need to constantly communicate its value in different ways to different people. What's your response to this proposition? I, I mean, I guess I'm really lucky because I'm the CEO as well. So, <laughs> you know, most of the time I don't have to convince every, anybody but myself. That's not true. So, because I know your team and they don't come and say, the reason I'm doing this is because Simon told me to. They're actually engaged, which means you've yeah. sold them in a lot of ways. You've connected the reason why you're doing it yeah. to them, and that requires a set of approaches and strategies. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess my approach to that is pretty personal. You know, I'll normally kind of say, oh, so exciting, this work. You know, I saw it in Edinburgh, I, you know, and I'm really, this is why I'm passionate about it and try and get people to kind of, see you find I guess their personal connection to it and why they want to try and make it happen as well but I do think there are times where I'll just go well we're doing it and you'll see afterwards why it was a good thing to do you know there are times where you have to kind of go I can't explain it and later people will go oh I totally understand why you made us do this it was incredible you know but what about your board or the mayor? Do they ever say, Simon, why are we doing this piece about blah? Well, I have kind of really strict processes around programming, which is that the board signs off on a programming kind of policy that's within our business plan, not on the program. So I can always explain the program in terms of the targets that we've set within our plan and explain why you know, so I, I feel like at that level, I should be able to point to the reason why we're doing it, which could be anything from to make money or because we've said that we want to present more First Nations work or we want to connect with people, you know, on the, in this way. As long as I can do that, I sort of feel like it's not anybody's business to sort of question the individual decisions as long as they're within that context. How about you, Virginia? 
Well, for me, I guess it's two different stories, really, because, you know, there's choosing a show that I'll bring in. And I think there's a fair amount of trust from uh, from leadership, from the organisation as to why I would have chosen it to fit within a certain genre or stream. You know, is it is it education? Is it niche? Is it is it popular culture? The reason that's in there and the shape of the storytelling of a program. So individual shows, I think, yeah, a lot is just based on trust if it's something that we're just buying in. And sometimes I'll encourage people, other people to go and see it and then get their take and then there's more enthusiasm around it but building events is the one where I find is the is the biggest one of actually building building trust and having to go through the many layers so you know initially I will start off with an idea I'll bring on a team the team around me create ownership around that idea then everyone embellishes that and there becomes a part of everyone within that that then is shaped into a picture which makes it something real that then we can take to the executive and and budget it and see if that can fit within our dream of what we want to do here. So for me, it's very much about starting off with a, with a gem of an idea and enthusiasm and just building it with wonderful people around me. So there's a sense of, of ownership. So as much ownership as we can possibly find across it. So people feel proud in every part what they, I mean, what I would hope to aspire to with any event that everyone who's involved in it from the organisation walks away being really proud about the part they brought to it. And it was their event and they talk about it as their event, whatever role they've actually played in it. What is your relationship to risk? I love risk personally. <laughs> it's like, I, I think absolutely every program you do just has to have it have a balance in it like yep you have a few risk things in there it may go great it may be a failure but then you've got your safety and then that's balanced with safety if you don't like taking a risk you're in the wrong business if you're a producer or a programmer because it, it basically that's what the activity is it is risk it, it's all risk no I find that absolutely thrilling um I, I I I you know that's the adrenaline pumping kind of thing is oh my god will this work will they get it will they buy tickets will they you know all, all of the risks personally I'm as energized by mm. something being commercially commercially successful as I am it being artistically successful I mean I think explaining the risk is the hard bit not the actual risk itself I'm also, in my experience, audiences almost always reward you in one way or another for, for taking a risk. You know, it, it may not always sell the right number of tickets, but the number of times where you've kind of gone, yeah, the risk, you know, at the box office may not have paid off, but you totally know it was the right thing to do because response you got from audience or community or or somebody, you know. Um. And, and, and no, I, I agree with that completely because there's also the reverse side of the work that you really don't care about that does incredibly well. And nobody ever asks you to give that money back because it was based on artistically shaky foundations. Actually, though, I've experienced quite a few times making the compromise and say, I'm going to program that because you, know, you can't say no to that. You know, it'll sell the tickets. And then sort of having the audience slap me in the face and go, Nah, it wasn't the success you thought it would be. I do have things pitched to me that go, this is going to be, this is going to go viral. It's going to be a commercial success. And you go, really? I want to reflect for a little bit on the challenges and opportunities of being about an hour away from somewhere that's got a bigger budget, more seats, far more international access, bigger audiences than you have. And there's obviously risks, but there's also opportunities. What are they? You know, when we survey our audience, our biggest competitor is the Sydney Opera House. So 
our audience can drive to the opera house, see a show yeah. and drive home you know, about an hour each way, depending on traffic. That's kind of real. <laughs> One can't pretend that isn't the case. For the most part, though, what I've discovered is that most people want to do things locally, given the choice. If you think about the way you live, um, when you make a psychological decision to go and travel or, or to go to the big thing in the city, actually most of what you do, you would rather do locally in your neighbourhood if you could. Um, and I think the same is true for most people that go to the theatre, particularly the people who go several times a year. You know, I think there are people who go to see the one big show a year and going to the big smoke to do it is the experience. But most people who actually want to make theatre going a regular part of their life would rather do it as close to home as possible. The other thing is that very often you can't see the stuff that's on in our programme in Sydney. So, you know, and we don't deliberately sort of do that. I'm not really into that sort of exclusivity thing so much. But very often something will come and do the Adelaide Festival and us or, you know, and so... I, I think that that's part of communicating to an audience that's an hour away from the city that you will see some of the best things that you could see in Sydney and you'll see some stuff that you couldn't see in Sydney and you'll see some stuff that's really connected to your community and is meaningful that won't be on in Sydney. So don't go to Sydney, stay in Wollongong, go to the theatre. I think I could probably just about duplicate that story and put Brisbane into the picture and, you know, only being that one hour away. I think some of the biggest challenges for me, the size of our audiences that we can pull from, which only enables us to have such short seasons of work. So I find that often really difficult. You just want to be able to build word of mouth and you, and that's not possible. So that's, that's, kind of a frustration and, and a reality. The other thing that I do find a little bit annoying sometimes when things go into Brisbane yeah. and we know that audiences like to just travel locally and not many of them are going to travel up the road and there's an exclusivity around it that we can't actually have the gig because it's too close and it's got to, they could have to go to Brisbane. And I go, well, that to me is not serving the artist or, or serving the audiences, frankly. So that, you know, that can be a frustration that, you know, because at the end of the day, we as a smaller organisation don't actually have any fear of the bigger organisation, really. It's just like, you know, we're talking to our local audiences. And that's especially around kids stuff too, I think. One of the real positives are that, we, like you, um, really, Simon, that we can uh, talk to festivals and just go, it's fine. It won't take away from the brilliant this brilliant show that's in your festival because no one will know it's even going on at our place. It's fine, and so and that is kind of true. So we can get amazing shows coming here that actually have no effect on the other festivals because they're not in the in the big city in the big city glamour. And I kind of feel like what I absolutely love about Hotter is I feel like it's a bit of a new wild frontier where we actually, we have a very bold leader and we have the capacity to just do new things, try new things, and we're not steeped in a tradition of this is how it's done. And so I think that's a wonderful thing to have in being out of a city where you can actually broaden the expectations and, and for somehow, you know, audiences can sometimes be maybe a little bit more forgiving of, uh, of taking risk. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important thing. I mean, in many ways, for me, being in a place that's big enough that you can do some interesting things, but small enough that the risks are not so great 
that it stops you doing those things. You know, and I, and I think that that's, that's a sort of sweet spot of going, there's enough of an audience that if we communicate this right, you know, we can make it add up, we can get the numbers, but also that it's a small enough kind of risk in a sense because we're not trying to make 10 weeks at, in the concert hall at the opera house work, you know. The scale is smaller, the, the risks yeah, are easier yeah, to kind of... Yeah. Um, We're stomach. in very similar places, aren't we? I mean, I, I think the other thing about being sort of an hour away from a Sydney or a Brisbane that's that's actually really important is that we actually aren't isolated from the industry, but we're separated from it when we want to be. And I, I love sort of not being part of it, but being able to go and be part of it whenever I want, you know, and sort of. I know what you mean. My highlights of being up here, you know, going to opening nights up in uh, up in Brisbane, and you know, they usually circa opening nights where I go, yeah, I feel here's my family. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can be part of that, but also you you sit separate from it, which is so nice. You know, it's so sort of grounding to not feel like that's every night of the week, but you can dip in when you want. A friend of mine who lives in a very big city once told me that Australia was the Brisbane of the world. And um, I think it's probably a bit the same. These kind of relationships get replicated. I mean, for if you live in Sydney, there's a, you know, there's a sense that, well, you're not New York or you're not London. And that kind of gets gets kind of replicated down. And both those strengths and weaknesses play up. Actually, the thing I love about that, Yaron, is that when whenever I talk to international artists or companies... Um, so, you know, if you talk to people in Australia, they're like, oh, Wollongong, really? You know, when you talk to people overseas, it's like, oh, yeah, Wollongong. Well, it's Australia, right? So the whole of Australia is, is. you know, Wollongong. Far, far, exactly. <laughs> right. we're, far, we're far away and we're obscure and those are both strengths and, strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. So they don't care. They don't have that prejudice that it's Wollongong, not Sydney. They couldn't care. It's like, it's Australia, right? No, that's right. Look, when we were programming the Commonwealth Games, no one ever said, well, I would I would have come if it had been Brisbane or Sydney, but I won't come because it's the Gold Coast. Some of them were interested in why we want to put on this crazy thing at the Gold Coast, but it was only ever a conversation. Finally, I'm interested in something that, Simon, you've spoken quite a lot about, which is rethinking the relationship with audiences into new models of producing and commissioning into putting the to changing the the reception from a, a venue that buys to an audience that receives and trying to find or rethink models and i would have thought that being a little bit further away you had a bit more you had the opportunity to trial some things and explore some some different ways How, how's that going for you um well it's I mean, in, in some ways it's been stopped dead by the shutdown for COVID-19 and in other ways it's been, it's proving to be this amazing ability, you know, opportunity to kind of think, think about all of this. So, I mean, we, we are really in, <laughs> we were three months into a, an experiment with our Meridong X artists program where all of the, the things that had audience outcomes in that program, we've been working with this Canadian startup um, called We Show Up. And it's basically a system of being able to book a ticket for no money and then pay for your ticket afterwards and pay what you feel, you know, the experience was. But if you don't show up, you pay because we've got your credit card and we've got, you know, so you've sort of, there's a kind of penalty if you book and don't show up. So unfortunately, we're probably not enough into that experiment to really kind of understand whether that might work. But I guess it's the beginning the thing that we're interested in playing with is how do we not make an audience a customer 
you know, how do we think about audience not as customers and the show as a product? How do we sort of say, this is a collective experience, and if we could take out the transactional relationship or at least put it till afterwards, kind of put it to the side and let you come and just experience this thing, does that change what that thing is? You know, is there a fundamental difference to sitting there having said, well, I've paid 50 bucks or 60 bucks, so come on, entertain me, or actually I'm a willing participant in whatever this thing is going to be tonight and I'm here to sort of receive it on its terms and to, to participate in a sense. And based on that, you know, I'm going to walk out and think, wow, that was really valuable. I want to reward the artist or, or, you know, no, it didn't speak to me. It's nothing. I'm not interested in it, you know. And where could that lead? Does that lead to building communities of interest and support around artists? I'm fascinated to see what your audience experience is and how they value that at the end. I mean, fascinatingly, so far, and it's very early, we generate almost exactly the same amount from box office as if we'd sold the tickets, which, you know, to me is kind of encouraging because it feels like... You got the price point right. That's right, you know, but also that actually you can trust an audience for everybody that will try and stiff you and not pay. There's somebody else who is really inspired and wants to put a hundred bucks to it, you know. There's something at the core of that which goes to what a producer does, which is actually get audience members to invest their time and their time is a lot often a lot more of a significant contribution than their finances you think about the time to book get their range babysitters park the car have dinner get a group of friends together wrangle the friend who didn't come replace the ticket drive home talk about it like that's often five six eight hours worth of someone's time and yes there's a 50 dollars ticket in there but comparatively the time is a very great is a is a great investment, and to get someone to give you to get a thousand people to give you eight hours of their time, six or eight hours of their time, is a massive ask. You can be, think what you can build in five, six, eight thousand hours for a single night's entertainment if you had all that the access to that time. So you're really kind of needing to provide reasons why people want to spend that time with you for you i mean that's really a part of the whole programming structure is it's not just about the show it's about what experience are we building from the minute that person drives into the car park and and uh, and until they leave so so mapping out a whole experience for people and making every part of that valuable is a part of not just putting on a show it's painting the whole picture around it i think as well i I think it also makes you think about and yeah the nature of live performance as opposed to what you can watch on Netflix you know like we're asking people to get up and leave their cave and you know get dressed and have a shower and come to the theater and you know do all of that the the experience can't just be something that you could have watched on TV you know it's got to be something qualitatively different and and special and that ultimately is probably the only guiding principle for me is, is this special enough for people to leave home and come and experience? I agree with that, yeah. And so you make that that pinnacle, the, the special experience, and then build a pleasant experience around it so that it, holistically it's all worthwhile getting out of your PJs. Thank you both for being the kinds of people who help us get out of our PJs, come to communal spaces, 
and have experiences that change our lives. That only happens with producers and programmers who take risks regardless of where they are. I'm Euron Lifshitz and you've been listening to Producing Heroes, a Circa podcast produced by Lauren Isinger. If you've been listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review. And if you like what you've heard, you can find us on social media at Circa Contemporary Circus, hashtag Producing Heroes.